Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And we're back with part two of our discussion of the flatus ex machina. I think that's what we're going to call it. The uh, the comedy of errors that exist in the machine and artificial intelligence world. That's right. We were going to do it as one episode, but it just went too long. I had to break it up into two. But it has everything. It has... Uh, it has humor. It has uh, d- theories of humor. It has uh, killer robots, uh, references to RoboCop, uh, everything you could ask for. One of my favorite things, explaining a joke to death. Yes. And then, <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. basically, this is a lot of joke explaining, but I, I think by the end of it, everyone will still retain their ability to laugh. All right, so in thinking about what's so funny about machine failure uh, and and even machine success along a certain you know parameter of distance from what from what uh, its ultimate level of success would be you know AI that's sort of succeeding but still isn't really there. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess it, it's worthwhile to look at what are some of the main theories out there about what humor is. Like, why do we find anything funny, not just machines? Yeah, because it becomes increasingly difficult to really. Uh, nail it down. You know, you come back to that whole idea of it's funny because it's funny or you you know it when you see it. Uh, This uh, topic has come up a few times on the show before. Um, Most recently, uh, 2017's Laughing During Horror Movies. Mm -hmm. That was when uh, Christian was on the show and we talked about, um, you know, what is it about horror movies, like frightening, terrifying films that that elicits laughter from us. Yeah. And then there were a few other ones in the past, The Healing Power of Laughter, The Killing Joke, Funny or Die. These are all episodes of stuff to blow your mind you can you can check out in the vault if you so desire yeah and so uh what if you go and check those out i'm sure you uh as y'all have probably found before there's no one theory of humor right. and nobody agrees uh but there are sort of a host of competing theories that i would say aren't even always totally contradicting of one another. They, they sort of partially overlap and partially contradict one another. Right, yeah. There, there's not really a theory of everything, per se. But, like, each one feels a little bit right. Like, each theory is is kind of uh, fondling the elephant. Yeah, you know? exactly. Uh, so, a, a brief run-through of a few of the top ones. There's no way to explore all the theories of humor, but a few of the most commonly cited and most popular ones. Uh, one would be the superiority theory, and this is propounded in some classical works like uh, in the works of Plato and Aristotle. This one is actually kind of nasty, but sometimes I guess humor is kind of nasty. It proposes that we laugh when we notice someone is less fortunate than us in one way or another. And the laughter comes from our feeling that we occupy a place of superiority. We sort of deploy it as a form of scorn on somebody else. And Plato in his uh, Philebus dialogue, which is uh, discussing the nature of pleasure and different kinds of pleasure, like why pleasures of the mind might be superior to pleasures of the flesh. Uh, Plato has Socrates claim that we laugh at people who do not recognize their own misfortune. For example, when people are stupid but think themselves brilliant or when people are ugly but think themselves very handsome. And I would say this clearly doesn't cover all types of humor, like, you know, what about self-deprecating humor when you can laugh at yourself? But uh, there, there's something there that is clearly present in some humor. 
Yeah, well, you know, when it comes to self-deprecating humor and, and laughing at yourself, I think it does make sense when you consider our abilities to sometimes step outside of ourselves and see ourselves as, as a character in a story, mm-hmm. sort of the in, in infectious nature of narrative there. Yeah. Uh, but then also in the way that we use theory of mind way too much to try and imagine how others see us. So maybe like if you're trying to roll with this theory, you'd say that self-deprecating humor is almost when we pretend that we are ourselves someone else and you like step step back and you scorn a different version of yourself. Yeah, basically, like or you're just kind of imagining how scornful other people are being to you because of something you did or said or thought. Yeah, um, I mean, an- another thing I would just say is that unless you're a horrible person, and maybe you know Plato and Aristotle were in some ways very smart, but also very horrible people. (laughs) Unless you're a really bad person, you don't find most types of misfortunes of other people funny. Uh, I mean, I do see a certain distinction along Plato's lines in the Philebus where, like, a person just failing to do things that you could succeed at is generally not very funny. Like somebody trying to solve a math problem you could solve and they can't do it, that's not funny. Right. But – a, so, like if a man proclaims himself to be one of the greatest brains of all time and then is making basic errors of logic and math, that's usually funny. Yeah, I think a lot of it hinges on just, you know, what are the stakes and what sort of misfortune is taking place? Like another sort of example of this is when someone thinks they are refined about something mm-hmm. uh, and, and maybe they're a little snobbish about it, but yeah. but it turns out their tastes are not quite as refined as they thought. Um, I, I think there was an episode of Three's Company uh, back, you know, in the day in which uh, Don Knotts' character is ordering like a fine scotch at a bar and he's mm-hmm. really talking it up like he knows what he's talking about and exactly what kind of scotch he wants. And then when the, the bartender finally serves it to him, he requests that the rest of the glass be filled up with root beer. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, like that's, that's, that's hilarious because that's he, he turns out he's not as, as refined as he thought. But then it's also like we are being snobbish uh-huh. in, in making that judgment. Uh, and, it's, and that's always kind of a, a dick move, right? Because in anything, like whatever your thing is that you feel like you're refined in, be it food or drinks or film or literature, like there was a point in your life when you were not, when you were the person that was the subject of scorn. And, yeah. you know, ultimately, if we're being fair, you should celebrate that they are at all interested in, the, in this thing at all and that they are on – uh, hopefully on some sort of the same journey that you are. Yeah. Uh, but instead, we often laugh and say, can you believe that guy just put root beer um, all in that sky? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a really good point. Uh, so I, I don't know. I would say I definitely see something going on here. There, there are definitely elements of this in humor, but I don't think it explains all humor. I don't know if may, – maybe, maybe not. I don't know if it's a good fit for why machines are funny because obviously machines aren't – people exactly, but maybe we sort of see them as people when we think they're funny. Yeah, I think if we if you factor in the actual and or perceived abilities of AI and robots, either either what they can actually do or more, I think, to the point, what our science fiction and our futurist uh, scenarios have proposed that they will do or could yeah. do one day. Because the, we end up with this situation where like – we watch our Roomba do something stupid, mm-hmm. and there's, it's hilarious because like, ha, you're never going to Terminator me, Roomba. Right. Like you can't even you can't even deal with the uh, with this rug or this pile of cat vomit. 
Well, actually, though, I would say another reason this does kind of connect is it does kind of connect to Plato's thing about laughing at self-ignorance. Because one of the funniest things, as I sort of identified earlier about like the Ed 209 scene and all that, one of the funniest things about the ways that machines fail is the way that they are just so completely oblivious to their own shortcomings, the way they just – the way I think of it is that they fail and then plow straight ahead. You yeah. know, they they have they have done something crucially wrong and they do not appreciate this fact. Yeah. All right. Well, let's keep rolling. What are some other theories we can discuss? Okay. Next one would be like the nervous energy release theory. And this is not surprisingly at all a take that was popular with Freudians. Under this model, laughter is sort of a pleasurable release of built-up psychic tension caused by fear or apprehension. Uh, And there's a certain kind of logic to this, right? In the way that, say, good comedians repeatedly build tension and then dissipate it in various ways. Uh, I bet this also goes with the laughing during horror movies thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Like you, you get your tension built up when there's something scary is about to happen, and then after it's over, you you release the tension and you can laugh. Yeah, or certainly with with comedians who really leaned into like the awkwardness and the tension, like say like an Andy Kaufman, mm-hmm. you know, where their whole their whole bits or uh, if you want to call them bits, where it's really just making everyone uncomfortable. It's not even about punchlines. It's about just creating this this tension that at some point has to be relieved. Like at some point, all you can do is laugh. Yeah, so there's something there. I, I This clearly doesn't account for everything that's funny, you know, doesn't account for puns and all that mm. kind of thing. Uh, it uh, I don't know if I can see a way that it really fits with why technology failing is all that funny. No, yeah, I don't think I don't think there's anything particularly insightful about this theory regarding what we're talking about here today. Okay, here's another one. How about uh, the adaptation uh, to signal play? So that laughter would be an evolutionary adaptation that occurs when we're engaged in pretend aggression during play behaviors. It occurs as a signal to help everybody involved understand the fact that behaviors like chasing and wrestling and stuff are meant as play rather than as genuine aggression or harm. Yeah, this one I think is is important to, to mention here, if only for the reason that it touches on the social nature of laughter. Mm-hmm. That that laughter is is also about communicating with other people yeah. regarding various uh, threats, etc. Um, it, it's also I wonder if this is one where our storytelling has kind of kind of led us astray as well, though, because how many um, individuals that actually intend us harm are laughing hysterically or sardonically, uh, like? I'm, I'm sure it happens. Uh, I'm, I'm in, in, in maybe one or two scenarios even come to mind where someone was uh, did something horrible and violent and was seen laughing. But I don't feel like it probably occurs anywhere as near as often as it does in movies where villains are constantly laughing, be it, you know, an extreme example like the Joker mm-hmm. or or just any, you know, uh, uh, you know sardonic villain who just you know, maniacally laughs while uh, attempting to destroy the world. Uh, yeah, I mean, I would say this probably does go along with the theory then. I mean, if it, if somebody is laughing while they're actually attempting harm, they're, you know, their victim is not laughing. Right. So, like, so, yeah, I, I think this goes along there. Like, And if they are, then it's like that scene in the original, um, uh, what was it, Little Shop of Horrors. Yeah. Where, uh, or maybe it was in the remake as well, too, where the, um. Uh, the, the 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 evil dentist is going to work on this person, and this person just wants it. They want the the pain, yeah. and it just totally messes up his uh, his vibe. Yeah, I hadn't thought how it would accommodate the idea of like villains la- 
laughing while they do what they do. But I mean, I think this is clearly true in some cases that people laugh during mock aggressive play behaviors. Oh, just yes. like dogs wag their tails during mock aggressive play yeah. behaviors. It's like, you know, they're growling and snarling and tumbling, but you can tell they're not really fighting because their tails are wagging. And this is a nice uh, lead into one of, one of my favorite theories, and this is one that we've discussed on the, the show uh, uh, before in the past, and mm-hmm. that's the benign violation theory. Yeah, and this theory is very popular now. This theory proposes that humor occurs when, uh, one, we perceive a way in which rules or norms of some kind are broken. And these rules can be any, you know, all kinds of things. They can be r- grammatical rules. They could be biological classifications. They can be the rules of making sense. They can be moral norms. Uh, and then second, we recognize that there has been a violation, but it's not harmful. It's benign in nature. And then third, we see this contradiction between the fact that there's a violation and the fact that it's harmless. And that contradiction triggers humor. Like we said, this one's very popular. It's sub- supported by some empirical research. Just one example of uh, research in support that I came across is a 2010 study in psychological science by McGraw and Warren called Benign Violations Making Immoral Behavior Funny. And so to just cite one example that they talk about within that study, quote, people who are more weakly committed to a norm can recognize the violation but are less likely to be threatened or to directly experience the violation's repercussions. Consider a news story about a church that raffles off a Hummer SUV as part of a promotion for its members. Engaging in such a secular promotion jeopardizes the sanctity of the church, and although most people consider churches sacred, churchgoers should be more strongly committed to this belief than are people who do not attend church. Uh, So the researchers looked at this and they found that while churchgoers and non-churchgoers alike were about equally disgusted with this story, you know, the idea that a church would be trying to get people to join by giving them a chance to win a car, uh, non-churchgoers more often found the story humorous. And so that was like uh, non-churchgoers to churchgoers finding it humorous was 92% to 62%. So the idea is that non-churchgoers saw this as a benign violation and thus funny, and churchgoers saw it as a real harmful violation and thus not funny. Yeah, and I think that's something that's important to keep in mind in, in, you know, when, when looking at the benign violation theory is that it, how ultimately subjective it is going to be. And, right. and of course, that is comedy as well. So it, it matches up in that regard. Right. It depends on whether you actually see something as a violation and whether you actually see something as harmful or not. Now, there are different ways you could play around with the definitions in, of this theory to like, like you could make it very elastic to accommodate a lot of stuff or mm-hmm. you could more narrowly tailor it. I would say one problem potentially with it is that lots of things that are benign violations aren't funny at all. Uh, An example I came up with is, imagine you are not supposed to take home office supplies, but you do. You take home a pin. Well, that's a violation of the rules. It doesn't, it's not really harmful. It's benign. And it's not really funny. Right. But on the other hand, I would, I think the counter argument here would be, Okay, taking one pin home from work, like that's, I do that all the time. And we, uh, most of us do. That's one thing to take a pin home. Mm-hmm. Even accident- accidentally take one home to, uh, you know, purposely take one home. But uh, what if we upped it? What if instead of accidentally taking a pin home from work, you accidentally took all the pins home from work? <laughs> that's funny. Now it's, we're just getting into, you know, a little more, and I'm not saying that there's, 
it's the funniest gag of all time. Uh-huh. But certainly there's more room for hilarity in this scenario. Well, that starts to be more like a machine-type comedic mistake because mm-hmm. it's so uh, it's so over the top. It, it seems to kind of like not just violate a norm but just plows straight through it and goes all the way down. Right. Or I guess another way that it would work is if one meant to steal something of greater value, like one intended to um, – to uh, um, to perpetrate some greater violation of office norms, and then in the end, you only stole a pin. Mm-hmm. But even then, it doesn't land as well. It really needs to be a box of pins or all the pins. Yeah, I, I guess you could say, I mean, I think you could probably play around with exactly how you define the terms of benign violation to maybe accommodate those counterexamples. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say also, though, lots of things that are funny to people can feel like they're not at all benign. Like think of videos of people falling off skateboards and smashing their faces or the crotches <laughs> into handrails and brick walls and stuff. People find these things quite funny and people can get really hurt in them. Yeah, I think with with that, uh, I think part of it is that we generally see confirmation that they survived. Or if we don't see confirmation that they survived, whatever their horrible, um, you know, skateboarding accident was, then we at least don't see them going to the ER. Yeah. You know, like we have no additional information to go on, no additional context. And we can just kind of assume that they were okay. Uh, So, And I also was wondering about this. I wonder to what extent comedic interpretations of slapstick injuries – in which harm generally doesn't extend beyond the punchline. Mm-hmm. Um, if these program us to uh, to make these kind of comedic interpretations, uh, for instance, you know, you, when you think about comedic violence, you think about the Three Stooges. Yeah. And certainly they're just always brutalizing each other, and then they're fine. And then they're back for another adventure. They're fine. You don't mm-hmm. worry about their health. Right. Uh, take a good old-fashioned Three Stooges finger poke. Um, you know, we have to, in the eye. In the eye, you have two fingers, and then you go right for the eyes. And if nobody gets the block up, bam! Uh, there's like a, or I guess it's more of a boink noise, right? Uh-huh. So, <laughs> yeah. So when the Stooges do it, uh, it's hilarious, right? There's a lot of slapstick hilarity with with the the, the, the double finger poke. Mm-hmm. But uh, and then likewise, you look at something like pro wrestling. Mm-hmm. In pro wrestling, which of course is this uh, like sports theater thing. Uh, the finger poke is a, com- a comedy spot. You know, it's it's if someone goes for the double eye poke, uh, it's going to be a moment of hilarity as well. Right. But if somebody does it in a basketball game, that's not really funny. Right. Or if, or if someone does it in uh, most, if not all, combat sports, yeah. it is it is a banned maneuver. Like generally, if you are going for somebody's eyes. Like that's either it's either really evil or it's a move of desperation. Yeah, this does certainly make that to whatever extent the benign violation theory is true, it's highly context dependent. And and maybe the the truth there, if there is something to this theory, is that um, is that the context makes us determine what's benign and what's not. Right, and it's going to be highly dependent upon yeah, the culture you're in, the time you live in. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly, just thinking of workplace humor, there are a lot of violations today that are serious yeah. that may have been perceived as more benign in days past or as or seen as not violations at all. Oh yeah, this uh, go back to like the 1980s and like workplace sexual harassment mm-hmm. was a common like sitcom gag at the time. Right. It's just like, oh, it's hilarious, you know, he's he's harassing Tina again. Yeah. Uh, and now like that's not really funny at all anymore because we see that I think I think because people see that as a more genuine violation, not as something that's just oh, harmless, you can wave it off. That's just Ted being Ted. So how do you feel about uh, about benign violation and uh, neural networks? Well, strangely, I do see 
part of a fit here um, because I, along the lines of the the church SUV example, the more serious and reverent the context in which the technology is presented, the funnier it is when it fails. I think about like Ed 209, this, the scene is sort of made by the fact that Dick Jones and all the biz bros are proudly boasting about this marvelous new technology that will be the future and then it fails in such a spectacular way. I think in general the failures of AI are much funnier when they're presented within a context of us knowing about people who believe in AI messiahs and, you know, AI basilisks and, and satans and all that, who, who uh, see this great future of, of power and dominance among AIs. Watching them mess up in hilarious ways becomes all the more poignant and perfect. <laughs> all right, time to take a quick break. We will be right back. All right, we're back. So one more theory is the incongruity resolution theory. This is a theory that's had various forms over the years, uh, for example, uh, advocated by Immanuel Kant and others. But essentially the idea here is that there is an incongruity between expectations and reality. Laughter occurs when we realize this incongruity can be resolved. And this is there's clearly a strong element of this in lots of humor. Again, you, a joke involves a setup and then a punchline. And mm-hmm. most often the setup – sets you up to expect one type of thing, the punchline subverts your expectations. So that's clearly there. But then again, there are lots of things that are surprising and turn our expectations on their heads and they're not funny. Yeah, like the incongruity has to be novel. Yeah. You know, it, it can't be a situation where I thought I was buying mozzarella, but I really got Munster. Mm-hmm. But that's not, that. that's really not funny. No, it would be funny if you thought you were buying mozzarella, you got home and it was like rat eggs. Yeah, especially because rats don't lay eggs. Yeah, yeah, it's like that. Yeah, that would be that would be a lot more uh, hilarious. One uh, different but somewhat similar theory I was reading about that I'd, I'd like to read this book now that I I know it exists. It's a 2011 book from. MIT Press called Inside Jokes by the authors Matthew Hurley, Daniel Dennett, and Reginald Adams, uh, Reginald Adams Jr. And they argue against the sufficiency of any of these models we've talked about already. They, they propose instead that humor is an evolutionary reward system. It's a pleasurable reward feeling that we get when we recognize the inappropriateness of a mental representation and then hmm. fix it. Hmm. So it's the brain's, it's, it's an internal reward system like we get from other things that are good for the body, like eating or something. Uh, It's the brain's reward system for debugging itself. And so you can imagine this is why many jokes have a setup. The setup prepares you to establish an inappropriate or incongruous mental representation. The punchline suddenly creates that inappropriate representation. And then the debugging that immediately happens in your brain following is rewarded with this pleasurable feeling of humor. Interesting. I think that's something that that probably matches. That's a model that matches with a lot of our experience of of having hilarious or ridiculous um, notions enter our head, and then you dismiss them, or you even don't. Really, you're not even considering them, but they just rise up uh, from the depths of your psyche. Yeah, and I think it it kind of fits well with what's funny about each entry in these like machine generated pieces of text because each moment you're going through this text, you're sort of being set up to 
think about the text in a certain way given the category you're already looking for, like names of spells and stuff, then constantly you're given something that doesn't really fit and then your brain has to debug why it doesn't really fit and that feels good. I'm not sure it's a perfect theory that covers all of humor either, but I am interested in it. Uh, maybe, you know, another thing is that, like you said earlier, it's possible there's no single perfect overarching theory of humor. Like, what if humor is a category held together not by a single all-inclusive set of criteria, but by a Wittgensteinian kind of family resemblances principle? There's no one thing that, that all humor is. Humor is instead multiple different related sets of things, none of which are entirely uh, contained in a single box. By the way, you know, if you open that box, it's going to be one of those spring snakes that comes flying out like you know, <laughs> when you open the, the fake can of nuts. Which one does that fit in? Um, I guess it, you know, it has to do with expectation, but also yeah. it's benign violation. That's because, true. So yeah. you're expecting nuts, not snakes, but you got a snake, but then, whoa, it's not a real snake, uh, which is a perfect animal to include in that gag given our, uh, you know, our, our, our evolutionary response to mm -hmm. a, a serpentine form. What if it's a real snake that bites you on the throat? I would like to see that happen more. Or what, one of my favorite gags that I, I did, at a, this was at a workplace at some point, there was this, I had like kind of this lame boss uh, who, who had a can, he had this exact gag of fake nuts, mm -hmm. fake peanuts, and if you opened it, a snake jumped out. Yeah. Um, so one day he was gone for the day, and so I took the snake, uh, got rid of the snake, and I filled it with actual peanuts. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it gave me so much pleasure. I don't. I never even got to witness the the payoff, but I just love the idea of him going to like pull this out on somebody or to just amuse himself, and then it's actually filled with nuts. And I don't know how lame the boss was. This was a this was kind of a time in my life when all bosses were lame. So uh, if any of my previous bosses are listening to me, I'm probably not talking about you. Well, there's another theory of humor that kind of fits that because of the way in which humor sort of interlocks with our expectations of people based on their individual characteristics. Uh, so this next one clearly doesn't account for everything that's funny, but it does have a kind of elegant, elegant connection to what we're talking about. So this is a theory of humor put forward by a, uh, a philosopher named Henri Bergson in a book called Laughter published in 1900. And one of the ideas Bergson puts forward here is that laughter is often our response to rigidity, inflexibility, and failure to adapt. And this is one of the reasons why comedies involve us being aware of, like, the particular flaws of a character and then seeing those same flaws acted out over and over again. Think about sitcoms. Like, it's not just that the characters have failures, but they tend to fail repeatedly in, in individually characteristic ways. Homer Simpson is lazy and he's thoughtless and he's motivated by donuts and gluttony and all that. Uh, Michael Scott in The Office is needy and attention-seeking and unaware of how he's perceived by others. Characters have these sort of trademarks and they, they keep making the same kinds of mistakes over and over. And it's their inability to adapt that makes it humorous in this point of view. Now, clearly, this doesn't account for everything that's funny, but it sort of ties in loosely with the Hurley-Dennett-Adams theory that humor rewards adaptation and mental debugging. These people, if they're making the same mistakes over and over, they're not debugging, and you're, like, debugging by watching them. But then again, of course, we have to come back to sort of the benign violation theory a little bit here, because we, we don't want characters that... Uh, 
fail too much, you know? Like, you don't yeah. want it to be, like, a tragic level of failure. Oh, right, yeah. And, of course, in reality, people fail to adapt all the, all the time in ways that aren't funny but are actually, like, sad or tragic or, you know, right. something very bad about it. But then there's that whole sliding scale, too, because especially with something like uh, like Michael Scott, especially. Yeah. Like, the, the office got into so much awkward territory just yes. every week, week after week. And um, it, it, a lot of that really got into sort of painful – pitiful territory. Uh-huh. Uh, so the, the, it definitely changed exactly where the, the line was in the sand. Uh-huh. Uh, but but still, ultimately, like, you know, Michael Scott didn't die at the end of an episode. Well, it helped by coming back and making the character lovable. Like, he wasn't yeah. getting into that, like, sad awkwardness and then just ending in a place where you hate him. Right, yeah. But anyway, I think this this theory about, like, rigidity and inflexibility and like repeating the same types of mistakes without adapting has some strong purchase on the funniest features of machine failure comedy. It's not just that the machine fails, but that the machine fails repeatedly, mechanically, according to inflexible guidelines, like the way it just keeps following the rules. When a neural net text generator spits out not just one nonsensical phrase, but like reams and reams of text without acknowledging or knowing at all that the first few words didn't make any sense. Or when I think about when a glitching video game character is stuck inside a table and just keeps running in place and talking. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's one of my favorites. Or it's that lack of context lack of context, lack of self-awareness, and lack of adaptability, the way machines just plow ahead despite problems that are obvious to us that they're clearly not aware of, I think that's key to what makes them so especially funny. And in this sense, they're kind of like the the Homer Simpsons and the Michael Scotts. They're the characters with inflexible, repetitive behaviors that lead to disaster, but which they never learn from or change. You know, I can't help but come back to the idea of, of a child and all of this and mm-hmm. the child analogy here. So, you know, we can we can laugh at our own children's mistakes or weird interpretations because we know that they're they're largely going to adapt. Yes, they're going to grow up, uh, and. That they're going to leave behind their their dragons, or hopefully they're just going to remember how to summon them in appropriate ways. Mm-hmm. Now, but if the the robot is hilarious because it continues to fail, and of course also because it is a machine and not a human child, uh, perhaps part of the issue too is that a machine is but a prototype, mm-hmm. and its next phase of advancement does not necessarily exist within itself, but in the next prototype, in another individual, if you will. I think that's a really good point, yes. like So a child can make a funny mistake, but then the child immediately within themselves learns something and, and or, you know, at least has the potential to learn something and grow and get better at not making that kind of mistake anymore, which in some cases is kind of tragic because the mistakes are glorious. Oh, yeah. Like half the in-jokes that my wife and I make are to things that my my, my son has not said in years. Uh-huh. But he said it once and it was hilarious and now we repeat it to each other. But like most of these machines – even though they might have the ability to learn from their mistakes, they learn from their their mistakes in like new instantiations of one, of themselves. Like you're saying, it's the next prototype. They don't automatically learn from their mistakes. You have to like do something to them to reboot them or retrain them or something. Right. And if it's a video game, yeah, this, this character is going to keep getting stuck in that table. Maybe yeah. there'll be a patch that fixes it. But for the most part, it's going to be the sequel that tries to get it right. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. And we're back. 
Now, I think this is all one of, one of the reasons that the Black Mirror episode Metalhead from 2017 is so effective. Did, I haven't did you seen see that this one, one, no. Oh, it's, it's, it's one of my favorites. Um, this, was, this was, again, 2017, and this came after years of us watching impressive yet ultimately clumsy and imperfect Boston Dynamics walking robot videos. Uh-huh. Uh, videos of such you know, in, entities as Big Dog. You know, which kind of has this springy kind of a sound as it prances along. And, and it's very impressive to look at. And yet at the same time, you know, there are videos of being kicked around, of mm. it, of, you know, certainly of it succeeding a lot, but also not quite, it's not reaching that level of like mature technology. Yeah, though I worry how much I already sympathize with it, like watching those Boston oh, Dynamics yeah. robots when somebody kicks the dog. I know it's just a robot, but I don't like that person who kicked it. Yeah. I'm like, that's cruel. How could you do that? Well, in uh, Metalhead, uh, basically the whole thing is kind of a post um, – apocalyptic scenario, mm-hmm. uh, killer robot scenario. And the killer robot we see is not a, a juvenile prototype, but what you might classify as an adult, uh, the, the technology uh, in a perce- at a perceived level of maturity. So the Boston Dynamics big dog uh, all grown up into a terrifying, lethal, uh, quadrupedal killing machine that overcomes every challenge in the natural or man-made world that it is presented with. Uh, and, and I think that's that's one of the reasons it is terrifying because it's kind of like, oh, yeah, these things are going to grow up. We're, we're, we're putting a lot of money and effort into making them grow up. And uh, – and, and how are we going to relate to that technology when it reaches that point? Well, that brings us back to something you were saying earlier about, like, the C.S. Lewis quote. Like, clearly our machines and their failures, I think, are becoming much funnier over time. Mm-hmm. Like, a steam engine designed to pump water out of a coal mine is really not funny when it malfunctions. Maybe it, like, cuts somebody's arm off. Like, it's it's not hilarious. Right. Uh, automatic doors are still not very funny. Maybe a little bit funnier, like I was saying, when they're trying to close on something over and over. You know, when it gets repetitive like that, Roombas are funnier. Uh, Anything attempting to generate real human language or simulate direct human behaviors, like, say, uh, the DARPA challenge bipedal robots, you know, when you watch them, like, collapsing in the sand or, like, when one of them, like, opens a door and the door goes open and then they just crumple in a heap on the ground, that kind of thing. It is definitely even funnier. Like machines seem to get funnier the closer they get to resembling real human behaviors, the better they simulate. And I wonder – so it's almost like there's an uncanny valley of humor in a way. Oh, yeah. I think uncanny valley definitely gets into this territory. Uh, I'm specifically reminded of Sophia, the smiling humanoid robot that's become something of a meme. Yeah. And it's very impressive. Like that's the thing. At the same time, it is – Amazing! Like this thing would be worshipped as a <laughs> god in a previous age, but it smiles too fast. It smiles too fast, and it's just—it's not right. <clears throat> and you—you you can't help but either look away or laugh. But yeah, I mean, I wonder if there there is an element. I don't think it's the whole thing, but I do wonder if it's there's sort of an undercurrent in machine humor of a kind of nervous laughter at uh, you know at machines mm-hmm. uh, potentially becoming more human, more threatening to our sense of species specialness, and potentially more threatening to our safety, like we were talking about. You know, I'm, I'm reminded of something we mentioned fairly often on the show, actually, ever since our conversation with R. Scott Baker mm-hmm. about this, about how you don't need Terminators or Matrix agents or other evil, super intelligent villains who want to exterminate humans 
for AI to represent a threat to humanity. In fact, I'm much more worried about the threat from stupid AI that is powerful before it is wise, sort of like the way that so many examples we've discussed already just plow ahead, carrying out their functions without realizing they're going the wrong way or they're they're stuck or they're not making any sense. Uh, like, attach that kind of logic to practical functions that have power over our lives, and there can be terrible consequences. Which also kind of comes back to children. It's like these are the these are the the humans that will one day rule the world, uh-huh. and uh, and and just listen to the, the the weird things they keep saying to us. Right. Yeah. Well, I guess there's always kind of a terror at the upcoming gen- generations in there because there's oh, yeah. always a little bit of lack of understanding. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, kids are always going to be. Um, Amusing, but also, yeah, you you wonder, uh, you know, if they're going to be able to really grow out of this. And then, likewise, teenagers are always going to be terrifying to the older generations. Right. Well, so bringing it back to uh, neural networks generating text, one of the things that I see come up most often in like articles about the subject is fears about. Uh, machine-generated news articles, like specifically machine-generated fake news or hoax news mm-hmm. articles. Uh, of course, I'm not talking about the version of fake news that has become a politicized term. I mean like articles that are generated to contain false information. Right. Even intentionally uh, uh, created, say, propaganda or misinformation. Yeah. Or just nonsense. Mm -hmm. And so it shouldn't come as a shock that there are already programs that can and do write fake articles from AI-generated text. The problem is not that these programs exist, like humans write hoax and propaganda articles all the time. It's not that we couldn't create them without machines. My fear is maybe about volume, like if the process of putting out – hoax, nonsense articles and stuff can be automated. You can just do so much of it. And one of the keys is that it doesn't have to be good or convincing to be damaging. If you simply flood the zone of of people's internet experience with obvious nonsense and trash, they don't have to believe it. It can just do lots of damage to a culture simply by flooding out everything else. Right. I mean, you can you can almost imagine a future generation looking back at a time like that and saying, well, you know, we, it's really difficult to know exactly what they they felt and thought because of all the nonsense yeah. that was created. Uh, say, not, not just textual, but uh, video nonsense, uh, Photoshop nonsense. Like, you know, who, where are the real people and their actual concerns and all of this? Yeah, I, I really worry about the, the potential for dumb, context-ignorant algorithms that seem perfectly capable of steering users ineluctably into more and more horrible and mind-destroying content on platforms like YouTube, you know. And YouTube yet. content-serving <laughs> algorithms, that's already the world-destroying AI. But here's the thing, Joe. What if it's all funny? What if it's all really funny? Like, <laughs> well, in some cases it is. Like top-shelf clickhole funny. Then, uh, <laughs> then I don't know, maybe I'm all in for the, the age of unreason. I worry about this more, the the kind of mind-ravaging dumb AI, way more than I worry about the Great Basilisk. (laughs) I agree with you there. All right, well, well, I want to bring it back to lighter territory here. Uh, The joke-telling capabilities of Siri Mm -hmm. on an iPhone. Now, I imagine anyone out there who has an iPhone, and probably there's some degree of this in any kind of, uh, you know, voice interface uh, system, Mm -hmm. Alexa or or what have you. But uh, when you you ask Siri to tell you a knock-knock joke, she will tell you a knock-knock joke. And some of them are pretty funny. Uh, and then she'll, you, you ask her other things, so there'll be a hilarious response. Like if you ask her about how 9,000, she has a funny response that's, you know, pre-programmed in. It's, it 
It's something right. that somebody wrote and created. This is human human augmented humor. Yeah, but one of my favorites uh, is a uh, is one that uh, Siri told me where clearly it was an there was an error that took place, uh-huh. and I'm not perfectly replicating it here, but it was something like this: uh, knock knock. I say, who's there? And then Siri says, Sophia. And I say, Sophia who? And then she says, I'm sorry, there's nobody in your call uh, list or your contact list named <laughs> Sophia. Like, and so I never get to find out what the rest of that joke is because oh. in asking, in, in responding to the knock-knock joke, it she thinks I'm trying to make a call. Uh-huh. And uh, so uh, that that makes me laugh every time that I've heard it. That's really good. It's like a performance art kind of joke. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's trying to be you know, actual funny joke telling, but then it gets into this machine error uh, level of joke telling. And it's probably uh, the more hilarious outcome of the two. There is no one called Big Cat, Big Cat, Big Cat, Big Cat in your address book. (laughs) There should be, though. I should create that. All right. Well, there you have it. Um, I feel like we have um, completely explained humor and um, (laughs) artificial intelligence. We uh, hope you never find anything funny again. <laughs> uh, yeah. As, so, uh, yeah, as always, if you want more content, you want more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That is the mothership. That's where you'll find all the episodes. That's where you'll find links out to social media accounts. That's where you'll find uh, a link to our T-shirt store uh, where you can get the uh, All Hail the Great Basilisk T-shirt. Uh, so you can you can have a little fun, have a little uh, find a little humor in the idea of future uh, hyper-powerful AI over lords. Scorn the machines. That's right. Uh, It's a fun way to support the show. You can also support us. The best way to support us is just to rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so. Like whatever platform you're using to listen to podcasts, uh, make sure you've thrown a few stars and a nice review our way. Hey, have you subscribed to Invention yet? If you haven't, that's our other podcast. We bring the same kind of approach we bring on Stuff to Blow Your Mind, but we talk about inventions from history. If you like this show, we're pretty sure you'll like that one too, so you should go check it out and subscribe. Yeah, two whole episodes on toilets, for instance. Oh, man, that was fun. You'll never look at a toilet the same way way again. Honestly, I don't. I I have way more appreciation of toilet kind than I did before. And there's an example, technology that is inherently funny. Mm -hmm. And inherently good. Yeah, it's very good, very important. Anyway, huge thanks to our excellent Excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to uh, reach out to us to uh, send us an email and let us know what you think about the show, feedback on this episode or any other, suggestions for future topics, uh, or just let us know maybe how you found out about us, where you listen from, that kind of stuff, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.